And Father, we thank you that because Christ has risen from the dead, that all your promises are true. That we can trust with, with confidence that everything that we read in the scriptures have, are fulfilled, are true, are guaranteed. And today, as we open up your word, I pray that, Lord, that you will do your work through the preaching of your word. Have your way today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Hopefully everybody's had a great week. It's good to see the sun shining through. It's like spring is coming. It's just not here yet, but we've got the anticipation of it coming around the corner. Easter uh, Sunday right around the corner. But uh, today we're going to continue coming closer and closer towards the end of our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And if you would, open up uh, chapter 14, or we will conclude chapter 14 today and turn the page to, to 15 and on our way to 16. But as you do, I think it kind of goes without saying, at least I hope it goes without saying, that uh, the, one of the most important things in life is, is honesty, um, is, is telling the truth. And it's not just because it's morally right obligation, it, it's, it's a biblical obligation that we see all throughout text, and we're going to see somewhat why today. But whether it's proclaiming the, the truth of Christ, whether it's in conversations that we're having among family and friends, or maybe it's our business dealings, or it's tax season and being honest when it comes to our taxes, you name it, there, there's an obligation, there's an importance when it comes to honesty. But have you ever noticed how, how the, even the, the simplest things in life that we're prone to be tempted to lie? Like you think about it. And I, I'll give a, a personal example here where I, by nature, I am a morning person. And that means I operate best in the mornings, wake up early, get rolling. Um, Leslie, on the other hand, is an evening person. And so she's operating best in the evening. So you can just assume and guess how that works in kind of some frustration and difficulties within our family. So at night, you know, home, we're both kind of awake, somewhat and ready to be able to, Bryant's down, gone to bed, and it's just like chill time, right? And you're maybe sitting in front of the television or trying to, and you're trying to be able to kind of wind down for the evening, and, and it's, I, I wind down a whole lot faster than she does because I'm a morning person. And we'll be sitting on, on the couch, ideally, and we'll be watching a show, and she'll lean over, I'll hear her say, Jeremy, go to bed. My initial response, guys, you understand where I'm coming from here, is what? I'm not sleeping. And to which she says, oh, yeah? Like, what, what, what just happened in the show? And I'm like, uh, uh, the detective just did, and, like, go to bed. <laughs> and my then response is I get defensive. <laughs> and that can lead to then sometimes a fight at 10 30, 11 o'clock, or whenever it is at night. I'm not operating at my best. She's frustrated because we're not going to be able to engage in those moments. And then just everything begins to, to break loose. But my number one inclination of that moment is to defend myself, is to begin to immediately say, um, the detective is doing, when I have no clue what is taking place, my head's drooped down, my eyes are closed, I'm drooling at the mouth, and, and like I'm, I'm clearly asleep, and you know, I'm, I'm caught in a lie. Now, in the big scheme of things, that's really not that big of a deal. It can be, it could turn out to be, but we all know of other situations that are. Other situations that are far more serious, and how little lies can turn into bigger lies. 
And whether, whether it's a little lie or a big lie, they all start with, in one way, shape, or form, a fear of what might happen if the truth comes out. We're afraid of acknowledging something that, that's true. For whatever reason, then, we're prone to lie. I'm being very real this morning, and some of you may be living under that fear right now. You're scared to death about something in your life coming out and the truth being known. That if other people knew these things about you or knew of these type of events or whatever it may be, you're scared to death of whatever that may be. But as we'll see today, we cannot put forward a faithful Christian witness without truthfulness. Truthfulness and honesty is at the core of a faithful walk with Christ, a faithful Christian witness. And that's what we're going to see today in the text as we look in verse 53 here in chapter 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter war warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with, with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. And again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Now what we have here are two events that are happening simultaneously. We have Jesus before the council and we have Peter down in the courtyard, both happening at the exact same time. And what this sets up for is a very clear compare and contrast, more contrast than there is compare. And what we're going to do today is we're going to divide this into three sections. First, we're going to look at Jesus and, and his witness here before the council. And then we're going to look at Peter in the courtyard. And then we're going to come back and we're going to look how all, all of this directly applies to each and every one of us here. 
So I've joked this week that today is going to be a 15-point sermon, um, and in one sense that it is, but it's going to be like five things that we see from Jesus. Contrast that with the five exact things we see from Peter. Contrast that with the five things of a faithful Christian witness. So if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, you can write these kind of in kind of bringing along side by side with one another, and it'll help you see the, the contrast with one as you take the notes. We're going to start here with marks of a faithful witness. And clearly that is us starting here with Jesus. One, Jesus is blameless. It's what we have here in, in verse 55. And he says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But look at these last four words. But they found none. Like they're looking. They're trying. They're doing everything they can to find a reason to be able to put him to death. But they found none. Why? Because Jesus is completely blameless. Jesus was without sin. There is not one accusation that can be truthfully made against him. Not one. Which is why, number two, Jesus has many bear false witness against him. In verse 56, many, many here referring to the religious leaders, bore false witness against him. They're telling untruths about him and, and his teaching. They're making up lies about him and what he's teaching. Why? Because their hatred for him is so great. And his blamelessness is so pure that the only thing that they can do in order to try to catch him, to try to trap him, is to make up lies about him. They're making up lies in an attempt to destroy Jesus because they have nothing else to go on. Nothing else. Think about if that could be said of us. Think about if that could be said of us. Blamelessness to the degree that the only way people could ever condemn us is to make up lies about us. That's the only way that they could bring up anything is to lie about us. <laughs> but then notice how in the midst of these lies being levied upon Jesus, look how he reacts. Look at number three. Jesus doesn't defend himself. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What, what is it that these men testify against you? Basically, what he's asking is he's saying, aren't you going to defend yourself here, Jesus? <laughs> what, what answer are you going to provide? And, and how does Jesus respond here to all these false accusations? He remained silent and made no answer. Think about that for a moment. All these false accusations are being levied upon Jesus. And he remains silent and brings no response which is way different than I'm inclined to respond. <laughs> way different than I'm, I'm assuming most of us in this room are inclined to respond. Bring false witness against me, my family, and my first instinct is to defend. <laughs> I want to come back and I want to defend myself. I want to be like, you fools got it wrong. <laughs> you don't understand the words that are coming out of your own mouths. You don't understand these things. But that's not what Jesus does. He remained silent and made no answer. There's such great wisdom in his silence. And we're going to come back to that in just a few moments. But when Jesus is asked a direct question, look how he responds. And with false accusations, he doesn't respond. But when he's asked a direct question, look how Jesus answers honestly about him being the Christ. Number four, here in the second part of verse 61, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? 
Are, are you the son of the blessed? Which is actually two questions in one that he's being asked here. Caiaphas, the high priest, is asking, are, are, are you the Messiah, Jesus? Are, are you the son of God? Now, he's not asking this because he wants to know the truth. He's not asking this because he's really curious about the answer. Why is he asking this? He's asking this because he wants to condemn Jesus. He wants to destroy Jesus. And he's heard about all the teaching. Maybe he himself has heard some of the teaching. He's heard the claims. He's heard of all the rumors of everybody's talking about. And now he's wanting Jesus to say it out loud so that he can have a means to trap him and to condemn him. And look how Jesus responds. Verse 62. I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now remember, up to this point, Jesus is basically taking the fifth, right? He's like, I'm not going to say anything because all you've brought is lies. But now they're asking a direct question regarding his identity. And he this time comes out and clearly says, I am. I am. But Jesus' answer here in the affirmative, knowing the consequences. He knows what they're trying to do. He knows what they're trying to accomplish. And he answers in the affirmative, knowing all of these things. But he doesn't just answer yes. He doesn't just answer yes here. He takes a step further. Look at that verse again. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That would be the right hand of God. And coming with the clouds of heaven. He's coming with judgment. What Jesus is saying here is you'll condemn me now unjustly. You're going to condemn me unjustly, but I'm going to return to judge you later and bring the just judgment that you deserve. That's what Jesus is telling them. It's a bold and truthful claim that brings about a reaction of horrifying indignation from the high priest, the religious leaders. They're horrified about what he has just said, but they're also in their mind like, okay, we've got him now. We've got him. He actually opened his mouth and said, I am. He said, we've got him. These men are looking for every reason they possibly can to destroy Jesus. And here's what Jesus does. Hey, let me give it to you on a silver platter. I'm going to give you the reason right here. Which is a reminder, not the point of the text, but the reminder, Jesus is offering up his life. It's not being taken from him. It's not being taken from him. He's doing this voluntarily, intentionally. But this is why, because of this claim, this is why Jesus, number five, is condemned to death. Just look at verse 63 and how the high priest responds, tearing his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. He's not condemned for his miracles for healing people, for for feeding thousands, or being a great moral example. Jesus is condemned to death for who he claimed to be, for his teaching. And at this condemnation, verse 65, some began to spit on him. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of all things, the one holding all things together by the word of his power, and they began to spit on him to cover his face, blindfold him, strike him, saying to him, prophesy, prophesy Jesus. Guards receiving him with blows and mocking him. 
And this is how they treated Jesus. Should we as his followers expect to be treated any different? It's a question for us to ponder. It's a question for us to consider. But now at the exact same time this is taking place, we also have a situation with Peter in the courtyard. So think about all of that that we just looked at. That's taking place. And at the exact same time, contrast that with the events that are taking place here in the courtyard. Because now what we see is marks of an unfaithful witness. Here we we see Peter is not blameless. Unlike Jesus, Peter is not without sin. He's following in the distance under the cover of night after he has fled at the arrest of Jesus. After Jesus has been taken away, Peter takes off. He's nowhere to be found. Now he's kind of coming under the, the, the conceal of night. And just as Jesus has prophesied hours earlier, Peter is about to deny Jesus. And of all the peoples that he's about to deny Jesus to, it's one of the servant girls of the high priest. Now, no offense to any of the young ladies in the room today, okay? No, no offense whatsoever. But of all the people that Jesus could have denied, all the people that Peter could have denied Jesus to, a little servant girl is not the most intimidating of the bunch. Yes, she is connected to the high priest, but Peter is scared of confessing to a servant girl. And yet this is the same man who had boldly said to Jesus, if I must die with you, I will not deny you, Jesus. Remember that? He said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then here comes little servant girl. And Peter responds in fear. He responds with a lie. It's a reminder that it's easy to talk the talk as Christians, but it's a whole other thing to walk the walk. We see number two, Peter bears false witness. The servant girl says, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But Peter responds in verse 68, I neither know nor understand what you mean. (laughs) He's like, I don't know who you're talking about. Peter's a liar. (laughs) And the rooster crows for the first time. Then more accusations continue to follow. We see number three, Peter looks to defend himself. This is verse 69. And this man is one of them. And again, Peter denies it. Bystanders come in verse 70 saying, certainly you are one of them, you are, you are, for you are a Galilean. And what does Peter do? Verse 71, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter's sole objective in this moment is to defend himself. The exact opposite of what we see from Christ. All he's looking out for is to defend himself. He's doing exactly what most of us would probably do in the same situation. I hope not, but we can't think that we wouldn't. But why is he doing this? Because he knows the consequences that could come if he's found to be associated with Jesus. His fear of the consequences is driving him to speak untruths which shows the radical transformation. If you look at Peter's life post-resurrection of Jesus, and you look back and say, this is not the same dude. (laughs) This is not the same guy. Like Peter's bold like a lion after the resurrection, after he believed in the resurrected Christ. Here, he's gripped by fear. It shows the power, what faith in Christ will do to the life of a believer. But here we see this is why his fear 
is number four, why Peter doesn't provide an honest confession of Christ. Everything he said has been a lie. It's been words of denial. I neither know nor understand what you mean. I, I, I do not know this man of whom you speak. What we see here with Peter is a man who has an opportunity to proclaim the truth. He has an opportunity to call people to believe. But what instead, what does he do? He lies. He lies. He doesn't provide an honest confession of Christ at all. And now the rooster crows for a second time, just as Jesus had said. And here, number five, we realize that Peter deserves to be condemned to death. Not Jesus. Peter deserves to be condemned to death. He has denied Jesus as the, the Son of God. And understand, Peter is just as guilty as, as Jesus' accusers. He's just as guilty as Judas. He deserves the same condemnation that this very moment that is being levied upon Jesus. You know, kind of pull out of that and you kind of see the picture here. And you see a picture, an illustration of what's taking place of a substitutionary atonement. You have Jesus doing and living the life that Peter right in that moment is failing to live. Jesus is Peter's substitute, just as he is our substitute. And when the rooster crowed for a second time, Peter knew immediately what he had done. He's convicted to the core. We'll come back and talk more about that later. But he, we, as fellow Christians, we can all relate. He had done the very thing that he said he would never do. And his heart here is filled with repentant sorrow. This is why he broke down and why he wept. Which again, it begs another question for us. When was the last time that you wept over your sin? When was the last time that you were convicted to the point of weeping over your sin? Those questions to ponder bring us to our final section. Marks of a faithful Christian witness. We take all of these, looking at Jesus and looking at Peter, and we want to say, okay, how does this directly apply to each and every one of us? So I'm speaking to Christians in the room, and one is Christians aren't blameless. We're not blameless. Jesus was, we're not. We can all relate to Peter better than we would like to admit, especially Peter in these circumstances. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have failed to confess Christ, the truths of Christ, when given the opportunity. You know those moments when you, you know that you should confess Christ? You know that you need to take a stand? You know that you're hearing things that aren't quite true or totally non-true or untrue? And there's moments where you're, you're gripped by fear and you don't say anything? We've all been there. What we need to understand is becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we're going to be sinless from that point forward. Being a Christian does not mean being sinless. But it does mean that we are going to strive to live a blameless life in Christ. That we are going to strive to live a life that is above reproach. It takes us back to what we looked at last week. How Jesus is instructing the disciples to pray. He's not instructing them to pray for Him even though he's the one that is about to go into the time of distress, even though he is the one that is filled with such great sorrow, even though he is the one that is about to go to the cross, no, he's instructing them to pray for themselves. 
telling them to watch and to pray that you may not fall into temptation. Watch your life. Guard your life. Be on guard. Stay awake. Put up the parameters. Keep everything around you to keep you from falling into temptation. But also reminding them, you better be praying because you can't do this on your own. It's a helpful reminder that as Christians, we're not intended to do this on our own. That God has given us a helper. That we're not left to, do, to avoid temptation and avoid sin on our own devices. Our best efforts are never going to be enough. Now we can clearly spend a, a great deal of time camped out here <laughs> and talking about all these things, but what we want to do is just compare and contrast from what we've already seen with Jesus and Peter. So when we do that, we look and we say Christians must not bear false witness. Christians must not bear false witness. I mean, I think that's a helpful place to start, right? I mean, it is the ninth commandment of all. I mean, we should not bear false witness. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. That's what's ironic about Jesus before the council. What are they demanding from Jesus? That he give the truth, right? What are they doing to him? They're bearing false witness against him. So they're leveling, leveling lies upon Jesus, and yet at the same time, they're saying, hey, give us the truth. Like they can't have it both ways here. They're guilty of breaking the law. As we've seen, Peter is guilty of breaking the law. We are guilty of breaking the law. But we need to understand blamelessness includes truthfulness. It includes truthfulness. If we want to live blameless lives, we have to live truthful lives. Not just when it's convenient, but at all times. Because it's easy to do it when it's convenient, right? It's a whole other thing when we're going to be in the spot of like, okay, this is going to cost me something. We need to understand lies destroy trust. They destroy trust. I can destroy trust in a relationship, in a marriage, in friendships. No matter what age, whether you're young or whether you're old, Students, if, if you lie to your parents, it's going to take time to earn that trust back. Parents, if you lie to your children, it's going to take time to earn that trust back. It takes time. Lies destroy reputations. Not just the person who's, who's handing out the lie or telling the lie, but the person who's being lied against. We see this all the time within our culture. People levy out lies, hand out lies to people, and, and their reputations are completely destroyed only to find out that that was not even true. <laughs> and there's no retraction. It, it, it harms reputations. And ultimately, it destroys the gospel witness. Who's going to believe a liar? It's hard to believe someone you don't trust. That's why the church has such a bad reputation throughout our culture today. It's because so many people, whether it's pastors or Christians within the churches, have lost the trust of the people because they tell lies. Their lives don't live up and they don't back up the truths that they claim to, to believe. That's why every single person, but especially Christians, have an absolute moral obligation to speak truth, whether privately or publicly. Why? Why would we have an absolute moral obligation to speak the truth at all times? Because truth is rooted in the character of God. Truth is rooted in the character of God. 
everything about God is reflective of truth. Everything. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now contrast that with Satan, who scripture tells us is the father of lies. You have a clear contrast. Christians are to be a people of truth. Our aim should be to live such blameless and truthful lives that the only way someone can accuse us of wrongdoing is to lie about us. That should be our aim. Will we do that perfectly? No. But that should be our aim, resting in Christ every single step of the way. And if that does happen, where people begin to levy false truths against us, making untruths and lies about us, number three, Christians must not look to defend ourselves. And I don't know about you, but that's hard. Because my natural instinct, again, and again, I'm thinking most of us in this room, our natural instinct is to defend ourselves. Like, I want to stand up and be like, you got that wrong. You need to correct yourself. And in our day and age, like the, the number one thing is you just want to like hop on social media. Like I want to bring out my phone and I'm going to hop on Twitter and I want to like all 140, I guess I have 280 characters now and I can like make a rant about how, how bad this is and how much I'm, I've been wronged and all of these things. What's that do? Makes me feel good about myself, Right? I've just told somebody off face to face or maybe I've hidden behind a screen and I've told somebody off. <laughs> Woo! Makes me feel good. Has that accomplished anything in that situation? No, what it's probably accomplished is it's hurt the witness of the gospel. Now there are appropriate means of defending ourselves. There are appropriate means of correcting falsities. But, but not the means that we're inclined to resort to most often. James 1.19 tells us that Christians should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I don't know about you, but I'm inclined to the opposite. I'm inclined to the opposite, to, to be slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. That's the human tendency. That's the natural. I want to react. But when we look to Christ... Receiving slanderous attack after slanderous attack, what does he do? He remains silent. He doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't defend himself. Why? Why would he not do that? Because no matter what he says in that moment, it's not going to change the mind of his accusers. It's not going to. And when he does open his mouth, when he does tell them the truth, what do they do? They condemn him to death. It's a reminder here that you can't argue with ignorant. You can't make a blind person see. You're not going to win an argument such as this. So he remains silent and he lets his actions do the talking. His silence speaks volumes. His silence speaks volumes. Does yours? Christians, number four, Christians must provide an honest confession of Christ. Jesus is asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And how does he respond? I am. Despite the known consequences, he responds, I am. Peter, on the other hand, is, is, just, is associated with Jesus. And he responds, I do not know this man of whom you speak. I don't know. Why? Why does he respond that way? Because he's afraid of the consequences. 
Jesus knows exactly what's about to face him and, he, and he's not afraid. He takes it coming right at him despite the known consequences. Peter is afraid and he speaks lies. But regardless of the consequences, Christians have a moral obligation to put forth an honest Christian witness, an honest confession of Christ. And I'm not talking about just an affirmation of belief. Not, not just a saying, I believe in Jesus or I am a Christian. Because what does that mean anyway? If somebody tells you, hey, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, that really doesn't tell you much of anything about that person or what they actually believe. But we need to confess him truthfully for, for who he is. To faithfully confess the truths of the gospel knowing that they are offensive to a lost and dying world. Seeing making an honest confession of Christ, we're aligning ourselves with an absolute truth statement. In a world, in a culture that does not believe in absolute truth. Thus the problem. We're making a stand and we're saying to the watching world as Christians that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. That he was literally born of a virgin becoming 100% man while at the same time remaining 100% God affirming that he lived a perfectly sinless and blameless life, literally died on the cross, was buried in the grave, rose literally three days later, and will return to make all things new and bring judgment when he comes. We're affirming these as an absolute truth claim. And these truths distinguish every other truth claim that is to the contrary of these, as false, as false, as lies from the father of lies. That's controversial. That's very controversial because it's the confession that every other belief that does not line with these beliefs is not only wrong, but will result in the same judgment that Jesus promises his accusers. It will bring judgment. It's the truth that no matter how good someone appears to be, if they do not believe these truths, they do not believe the God of the Bible. They don't. If they do not believe these truths, they do not believe the God of the Bible, regardless of any claim to the contrary. And they will receive eternal damnation. So you can imagine faithfully Declaring and honestly declaring these truths will bring consequences in this culture. Thus fear. Someone in our life, someone in our path doesn't agree with those things. We have an opportunity to declare the truth. We're presented with a moment of fear. Do I tell the truth or do I remain silent? Do I speak? Do I agree? Do I placate? Christians must provide an honest confession of Christ to a watching and listening world if we are to be a faithful witness. Fifth and final, Christians are not condemned. We are not condemned. We deserve condemnation. But we're not condemned. Why? We're not condemned because Christ, the blameless one, stood in our place condemned. 
exchanging our sin for his righteousness. Therefore, for we who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. None. These are the truths that we rest in. These are the truths that we proclaim. While Peter is down, like, totally denying Christ, Jesus is substituting his life for his. Jesus is going to go to the cross and bear the punishment that Peter deserves. As do we. Then the question is, how do, how do we know that we are in Christ? How do I truly know that I am a Christian? Well, ask yourself, is Peter's story your story? Is Peter's story your story? I mean, Peter denied Jesus. Peter fell flat on his face, and so did Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. Both deserve condemnation. Both deserve judgment, as do we. But Peter's actions after his denial... But get this, Peter's actions after his denial, his life after the denial, unlike Judas, are marked by repentance and belief. Peter was aware of what he'd done. That's why he breaks down and he wept. But we're not basing our confidence in Peter's repentance in this one emotion-filled action. I'm not sitting here telling you that Peter is a Christian because he broke down and wept. Just as I would not tell you that you are a Christian because you broke down and wept one day and had remorse over sin one day. That you had an emotion-filled experience one moment. No, our confidence in Peter's repentance and ours is not based on one moment in time, except it is based on that point forward. It is based on the work of Christ on the cross, but it is not based upon us having an emotion-filled response and praying a prayer or walking an aisle or being baptized. That is not of which we base our salvation. No. We look and say, how are we living today? And are walking with Christ today. See, despite his radical fall, he repented and continued to believe. He pursued blamelessness. He endured, he persevered until the end, proclaiming Christ, living for Christ. It's exactly the opposite of what we see from Judas. We see a Peter, not a perfect man, but a man who continues to follow after Christ. See, every single one of us in this room have fallen and will continue to fall flat on our face at times in our life. We just will. Blamelessness is always the aim. Blamelessness is always something we're striving for, but we will sin against God. And we need to understand that because we sin against God, that doesn't mean that we're not Christians. But what happens next is the determining factor. Do we walk away from the faith like Judas? We all know people in our lives that we can say that's the case, or at least that's the evidence that they're putting forth at this point in time. They've walked with Jesus apparently for years, seemingly, but now they're nowhere to be found. They don't have any desire to follow Christ. There's no repentance that is evident in their life. Thus, there's no reason to us to have any confidence whatsoever that that individual is a Christian. Uh, the most loving thing that we can do is to treat that brother or sister as a non-Christian. We can't call them a brother or sister in Christ. We call them friend. The other side is, do we act like Judas or do we act like Peter? Do we repent 
in those moments. Yes, we fall flat on our face, but do we repent? Do we continue to believe? Do we continue to trust in Christ that he died in our place, receiving our condemnation? Do we continue to persevere in the faith? Which is it for you? Are you trusting and resting in Christ? Are you persevering in the faith? See, what we have before us is a picture of what a faithful Christian witness is and what a faithful Christian witness isn't. What can be said of you this morning? What can be the answer for you? Well, what type of witness are you? Because you are a witness. We all are. We're either a faithful, honest Christian witness or we're an unfaithful witness. Which is it for you today? Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize through what the Bible teaches that Jesus is blameless. And we are not. You are holy, holy, holy. And we are not. But yet your love is so great. You sent your son to receive our condemnation for us. Where Adam failed, where we failed, Jesus triumphed. And we say thank you. And for those who are not resting in Christ today, Lord, open their hearts and their minds to believe to rest in you as their only hope in life and in death. And for those of us who do, give us the strength to be faithful, truthful, and bold witnesses for you, regardless of consequence. Remove the fear of man and give us a greater understanding of you and the mission that you've called us to. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to the gospel through the singing.